This is the James Cancer Free World Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Dr. Rafe Pollock, the new, well, the fairly new director of the Ohio State University's Comprehensive Cancer Center. Rafe has had a long and very distinguished career as a surgeon, as a researcher, and as a leader, mostly at MD Anderson, where he was the head of surgery for 17 years. So today, we'll get to know Rafe and learn about his career, his oncology specialty, which is soft tissue sarcomas, and about how he came to be here at the James in 2013 and his new leadership challenge as director of the Cancer Center. Hi, Rafe. Welcome to the James Cancer Free World podcast. Steve, thanks very much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Great. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad we're going to get a chance to learn more about your career and some of your vision for the Cancer Center. Um, we've talked before, and I thought one of the things I thought was really interesting is, like so many other oncology doctors here, you didn't start out to be a cancer doctor. You had some different ideas. So give us a little background, a little history on your um days back in medical school and how you wound up doing what you're doing. Sure. Uh, I've always thought about uh, things perhaps from a slightly different uh, angle uh, than others might say is traditional. So, for example, when I was in college, I studied modern European history as okay. my major focus, <laughs> along with taking the courses that I needed to qualify for application to medical school. And then once I got to medical school, I went through a variety of different uh, potential interests. Where did you go to medical school? I went to St. Louis University uh, School of Medicine uh, in St. Louis. Uh, and while I was a student there, uh, I at one point was very interested in becoming a parasitologist and going into Central America to cure native uh, Central Americans of uh, parasite infections. Wow. Uh, I was interested at one point in becoming an endocrinologist, uh, but it wasn't really until my junior year of medical school when I uh, actually started working on the wards that my interest in surgery uh, was kindled. Uh, I was thinking about a career in internal medicine uh, as I entered my junior year and wanted to sign up for a very busy surgical rotation so that when I got to internal medicine uh, rotation, I would know how to take care of patients well. And so I signed up for the uh, basically the trauma surgery service at the, the St. Louis City Hospital. And once I went down uh, to the, the hospital and started working, I realized how competent uh, the surgeons were, how adept they were at handling emergencies. Yeah, uh, that, that must be a very intense um, atmosphere. In it was very intense. Yeah. Uh, basically, you were on call every other night. And because we were quite understaffed, uh, you had quite a bit of autonomy in taking care of patients yourself. So I was very, very uh, impressed with how effective the surgeons were at handling these very uh, aggressive workloads uh, that were thrust upon them. And that was where an initial surgical interest in burn surgery started because I had the opportunity to take care of uh, one particular patient who had a very severe facial burn. Okay. So... Burn, so you're starting to think I might be a burn surgeon, a surgeon, but maybe burn surgery. Yes, yes. Uh, this, this was a gentleman who uh, got into an altercation with another family member, uh, lay down on a sofa to take a nap, and uh, 
this family member uh, poured boiling lye on his oh face uh, and literally melted off much of his uh, much of his face. Uh, and so here I was as uh, the the neophyte junior medical student. Uh, being involved in caring for this individual. And um, I would stay down at night to take care of his skin grafts, make sure that they didn't float off the burn bed because of the accumulation of uh, serum and fluid underneath them. Uh, I got a chance to do skin grafting uh, in the uh, operating room. And this patient stayed with me the entire um, 18 weeks of that rotation. And it was a very dramatic interaction. And I had a chance to get to know him as a as an individual. And he had a fascinating career. He he played in the old Negro uh, major leagues uh, as, a, as baseball a baseball player. player. He was a pool hustler. He'd been in the Merchant Marine during World War II, had uh, children all over the world. It was just a real character, and I, I came to love him as a person and thought this would be a really interesting experience to have more of these types of opportunities in the future. So you obviously didn't become a burn surgeon. What, right. what changed your course into something else? Yeah, well, after... Uh, after that experience, I got very interested. I started reading about burn therapies. I started getting involved in thinking about research uh, opportunities. And when it came time to apply for residency, I, I applied to the University of Chicago uh, as my top choice. Uh, I wanted to go back to Chicago. Which That's where you're from, right? Hometown. Uh, and because they had a very, very good burn program. And I maintained that interest uh, through the first several years of residency. Uh, one of the rotations that uh, you uh, participate in as a resident in training was actually running the burn unit. And uh, just as uh, taking care of this patient was kind of a, a, a focal event that defined my interests, uh, I had a similar, uh, albeit negative, experience uh, with uh, in that, that really informed my career, subsequent career, in much the same way. Uh, Christmas Eve of the year that I was uh, running the burn unit as the resident in charge, uh, two identical twin girls were brought in, little four-year-old girls who uh, lived in a trailer park in South Chicago. Uh, and uh, as all too often happens, their uh, rayon... Uh, uh, nightgowns got caught in a space heater, and both of them came in with severe full thickness burns involving the entire frontal part of their body. Uh, I recognized uh, that uh, these children were both going to be very, very sick. Uh, as you can well imagine, their parents were very upset, uh, projecting a lot of hostility towards uh, the staff trying to care for their, their two burnt children. Uh, and ultimately, the two children died uh, about two weeks later, and it was just a, an emotionally wrenching experience. And I, I, I came to the realization uh, that I probably didn't have the emotional constitution to be able to do this type of care on a sustained level for the rest of my career. You think it was because it was children? and I, I think it was children who in this one episode that really was beyond their direct control their entire life, um, as it turned and, out, was and, determined yeah. or wow. predetermined for them. And that was just a very hard realization. 
so then what was your next step? Well, I really didn't know what to do next, and I thought uh, I would probably uh, complete my training as a general surgeon and then try to find a, uh, uh, a medical school that uh, was setting up um, a, uh, a, a surgery service or had an established surgery, surgery service in which I could uh, uh, coalesce my skills further and then uh, potentially float out into the real world and, and practice general surgery. Uh, but uh, about uh, five months after, five or six months after the experience in the burn unit. Still in Chicago, Still right? in Chicago. Okay. I, I was exposed to some very uh, outstanding uh, at that point, general surgeons who specialized in cancer surgery, this was uh, really before the era where there was uh, widespread surgical oncology fellowship training available. Uh, and uh, So back then, if you were a, an oncology or a cancer surgeon, you performed surgery on many types of cancer, not that's just correct. the specialty that you do today. That's okay. correct. And I hadn't really thought of myself in that context, but... Uh, uh, one of these senior surgeons in particular started taking me with to the tumor board meetings, uh, and, and I got an opportunity to see what multidisciplinary cancer care, even though this was in the early 1980s, and so the, the care itself was, was quite primitive compared to what we can do now, but I saw the intellectual content and the interaction and the opportunity for different specialists to align together to take care of patients and the, the results uh, and the satisfactions that came from that. Uh, and my interests in, in becoming a burn surgery waned and was replaced with a strong desire to become a surgical oncologist. Okay, so and which you did become. <laughs> which I did become, right. And I've heard you tell this story before about two uh, procedures, operations that sort of changed the course of your career. One while you were finishing up in Chicago and then one early on at MD Anderson. So share that with us, please. And, and that really gets us into your specialty of sarcomas and soft tissue sarcomas, right? Right, right. So... Um, I, I applied for fellowship training uh, in surgical oncology, uh, was uh, very fortunate to be selected to, to go to MD Anderson uh, for a two-year training program that included rotations not only in, in advanced cancer surgery, but also radiation oncology and medical oncology, uh, as well as uh, laboratory research. So it was a very broad-based fellowship, and that was definitely of appeal. Uh, and so shortly before uh, I moved from Chicago uh, to Houston for this fellowship, one of the last patients that I took care of was a young man who showed up in the emergency room with a, actually a type of bone sarcoma called osteosarcoma involving his humerus, which is the upper arm bone. Uh, I contacted my attending surgeon immediately, uh, and uh, he explained to me that this was a, uh, an oncologic emergency and that this uh, young man needed a radical amputation as, as soon as we could get him on the schedule. So the next morning, he was on the schedule, and that was the operation we performed. 
About five days later, uh, we packed up the U-Haul and drove from Chicago down to Houston, and as, as chance would have it, my first rotation was service on the sarcoma chemotherapy uh, service, and one of the very first patients that I took care of was a young boy about the same age as this uh, young man in Chicago who had a very similar situation. He had an osteosarcoma of his proximal humerus, but his had actually fractured, and he had quite a bit of bleeding. The uh, tumor had burst through had, and cracked the bone. Correct. Wow. Correct. And uh, he was actually from Rome, Italy, and had been flown over uh, from Italy in an air ambulance. Um, and so he was one of the first patients that I took care of as a, a new fellow at, at MD Anderson, and the attending uh, sarcoma medical oncologist, we were making rounds that after afternoon, and he said, does anyone know how to take care of this patient? And I said, oh, yes, I had a patient just like this uh, less than a week ago in Chicago. This is an oncologic emergency, and this young man needs a radical amput amputation as soon as we can get him on the schedule. Uh, the attending, who was a very experienced uh, sarcoma medical oncologist, a fellow named Bob Benjamin, looked at me uh, in horror uh, and sort of his, his faces were telling me that he was trying to figure out which planet I came from. And he said, no, that's not correct. This young man needs chemotherapy. So I had an opportunity to participate in his chemotherapy uh, for his uh, tumor. Uh, and then after he responded to the chemotherapy, the next step in his treatment was radiation therapy. And I happened to be rotating through the radiation oncology service while he received his radiation. So I got to participate in the planning and supervision of that aspect uh, of his care. And then as he completed that part of his treatment and moved on to his surgical resection, I was on the surgical oncology service and actually got to scrub in on his case that was a joint operation involving surgical oncology and orthopedic oncology in which the entire tumor as well as the joint that it involved uh, were removed to be replaced with an artificial joint uh, and some tissue transpositions to cover the defect. Uh, he healed up uneventfully from that operation, and I had the operation uh, had the opportunity to see him playing tennis uh, in Houston before he got on the plane to to go back to Italy. And so, right then and there, I recognized that I didn't know much about sarcoma. But I have a feeling that at the time you arrived at MD Anderson, right on the cusp of when treatment options and these multi-modal uh, therapies all coming together, different kinds of surgeries, chemo, radiation, were changing uh, cancer treatment and that you arrived at the right place at the right time to be part of that. Uh, that that's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, there was an awareness that was developing that chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and the various surgical specialties each had a, a role to play in this type of disease. But the trick was how to best integrate them. Uh, and, and I was also very taken by the role of the multidisciplinary planning conferences, uh, the collegiality, the team.
teamwork that went into the planning, the mutual respect that the different specialists had. Uh, and I just felt very, very strongly that this this resonated with me on a, on a deep internal level, that this was the type of physician that I wanted to be able to be when I finished my training. Okay. We'll be right back. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Rafe Pollack. Pelotonia is driven by their vision, a world where we are all healthier and empowered to live our best lives, lives filled with hope and possibility. In only nine years, the Pelotonia community, through their annual cycling event, has raised more than $157 million to accelerate funding for innovative cancer research at the James. The Pelotonia community knows that when we push ourselves individually and as a community, we can achieve great things. As Pelotonia celebrates their 10th anniversary, Pelotonia wants you to be part of making this vision a reality. To learn how you can get involved, please visit pelotonia.org. That's P-E-L-O-T-O-N-I-A dot org. Let's change the world together. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At the James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Dr. Rafe Pollack, and as we just learned, he arrived at MD Anderson as cancer treatment was going through some rapid improvements, and um, Rafe eventually uh, specialized in sarcomas and then soft tissue sarcomas, and give us an idea of what is a sarcoma and then the difference. What is a soft tissue sarcoma and some of the surgical challenges that um, soft tissue sarcomas present? Sure. So sarcomas in general are tumors of connective tissue origin, muscle, cartilage, tendon, nerve, nerve sheath, blood vessel, in distinction uh, to what we call epithelial cancers, which are made from cells that form glands, such as breast, stomach, colon, prostate. The sarcomas as a group are exceptionally rare. They constitute less than 1% of adult solid malignancies, uh, which is indeed fortunate given that their connective tissue origin, our bodies are about 75% connective tissue, and yet they're much underrepresented in terms of pure incidence. Uh, Broadly speaking, they fall into two categories, uh, what we call bone sarcoma, which are sarcomas involving uh, originating from bone or cartilage, versus soft tissue sarcoma, which is all the remaining types of sarcomas, for which there are somewhere between 50 and 100. Uh, depending, Different types of soft tissue sarcomas. Yes, depending, depending on the pathologic classification schema. And as you, as you study these tumors uh, in greater detail, you come to understand uh, that on both a clinical as well as molecular level, each one of these 50 to 100 different subtypes has their own biological behavior. So it becomes a, a huge universe of uh, tumors and information that is actually very esoteric given their, their overall incidence. And 
and how do you learn how to perform surgery in all these different kinds? Or are there enough similarities that through experience, no matter which of the 50 to 100 different kinds of soft tissue sarcomas you're facing, you, you know what to do? Well, uh, part of the value of a good surgical oncology fellowship is, is that it enables you to experience directly many different types of surgery. And if you're interested in soft tissue sarcoma surgery, because these tumors do not respect anatomic boundaries, you have to be prepared to operate across a wide swath of potential body areas, such as the extremities, the pelvis, the abdomen, the retroperitoneum, uh, uh, the the base of the neck, so the if, upper chest. So you're saying if, if the soft tissue sarcoma is in one spot, it's sort of tentacles spread out all over that you don't discover until you you're in there operating uh in an ultimate sense that's that's true and even and even then you may not be able to uh detect the microscopic disease uh, using uh, techniques such as frozen section to try to guide uh your your uh surgical resection margins what, so it's very what, challenging what that is way. that what is frozen section margins so uh sometimes uh for some types of sarcomas after the tumor is removed the edge of the tumor can be checked by pathologists taking small segments of tissue, literally freezing it, and then making glass slides by slicing through the frozen tissue uh, uh, and counterstaining it to inspect for the presence of cancer cells at the edge. And they're doing that in real time while you're still yes. operating? Okay. Yes. What does a tumor, when you're operating in... Um, inside someone's body. What does it look like? How do you, does it look different than the surrounding tissue? Well, ideally, we don't want to ever see the tumor even while we're operating it because we're trying to take a cuff of normal tissue uh, so that, that we- That surrounds it. That surrounds it so that the margins will ultimately be negative. Uh, occasionally, inadvertently, uh, that that principle can't be adhered to. For example, if some critical anatomy is right at the perimeter edge of, of the tumor. And, and so the tumor itself will have frequently have a very different feel than the normal surrounding tissues. And it certainly has a different appearance. Hmm. Okay. So that that's pretty fascinating. And you've done hundreds, if not thousands of surgeries over these past 30 or so years. Yes. And you're, in addition to being a surgeon and an MD, you're also a PhD, and you had a lab at yes. MD Anderson. You have a lab here. Yes. What is sort of your your lab's uh, area of, of research? Well, uh, my PhD, which uh, I earned during the time that I was an assistant professor of surgery uh, at, at MD Anderson, actually focused on tumor immunology. Uh, but I was very fortunate as uh, my interests shifted uh, to focus more and more on sarcoma. The NIH grant that I had at the time uh, enabled me to shift my focus accordingly and move uh, much more towards the molecular biology underlying soft tissue sarcoma inception, progression, and metastasis. And so, since the early 1990s, we've had a series of studies, uh, all of which 
fortunately have been funded by the uh, National Cancer Institute through grants, looking at a variety of different uh, molecular drivers of sarcoma proliferation. Uh, the role of uh, P53 tumor suppressor gene mutations in driving sarcoma, the role of overproduction of a substance called vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF, and its receptor in soft tissue sarcoma, mechanisms of chemoresistance uh, in soft tissue sarcoma, uh, and now more recently looking at the role of circulating microRNAs, uh, which in turn can trigger various growth mechanisms uh, in the internal milieu within some types of sarcomas. This is what we're studying currently. So the idea is if you can learn what uh, creates the cancer, what fuels it, you can better treat it. Uh, correct. That's exactly the principle. And, and better treatments are more effective than s current systemic therapies, uh, more targeted, uh, less toxic, better tolerated. Uh, so all of these are the directions where this type of research will ultimately drive us. And I'm very optimistic that we will ultimately converge on treatments that are, are much more effective than what we have to offer now. And you've, you've, you've witnessed and been part of that whole growth from basically just cutting things out to what you just described uh, and, and setting the foundation for this great future that you just mentioned. Yes, yes. It's been a wonderful journey to, to be able to move from highly mutilating operations alone yeah. to multidisciplinary care and now even more focused, targeted therapeutics that, that have these desired results. So that sounds like you coming here initially as, I'm not sure of the exact title, but the, the director of surgery at the James, and then as director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center, ties together your history, your training, your um, work as a surgeon, and as a researcher. Yes, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, uh, one of my very best friends in oncology uh, Mike Caligiuri, uh, who was the uh, director of the cancer program here at Ohio State, uh, was very involved in my recruitment to come here in 2013. Uh, technically, the titles were as uh, director of the Division of Surgical Oncology and chief of the surgical services at the James. This was about two years before the new James Hospital opened, and so part of the allure of coming here was being able to participate in the planning of this brand-new uh, large-scale surgical environment. Oh, so uh, you got to help create and 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 design the surgical base. Yes, uh, oh. which is really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah. Uh, being from the Midwest, I was also eager to, to get back to my roots, uh, and that was, that was part of the driver as well. Uh, I was tremendously impressed during my recruitment process at the, at the remarkable uh, collegiality uh, that I witnessed uh, at Ohio State, and, and I really decided this would be something I want to be part of if possible. You mentioned that collaboration aspect, and several other people I've talked to have said that same thing. How different is that culture here than perhaps at, uh, at other places? 
and why is it important? Well, this is the fifth medical center that I've worked in, and of the five, it clearly has the very best uh, uh, cooperative, collaborative, collegial environment, and, and that's critical in order to make progress, not only because solid tumor treatment is multidisciplinary, but increasingly team science is also multidisciplinary, and if you don't have this commitment to working together, the entity that will win ultimately is the tumor. Uh, our best shot is by working yeah. together, and it's extremely gratifying to being part of a, a group that's much larger than any of us as individuals where we can see this tangible progress being made. Well, now you're not just part of the group. You are the director of the group of the Comprehensive Cancer Center. But first, before we talk a little bit about that, those challenges, just so everyone understands, you've you've worked and still work about the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center. What's is the difference? Well, the James Cancer Hospital is the main treatment facility for cancer at Ohio State. It's the largest cancer hospital that's directly part of a university medical center and the third largest cancer hospital in the United States itself after Sloan Kettering and MD Anderson. That is in contrast to the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center which is the locus of cancer research at our university. Now, the two are very intimately connected on both an administrative and programmatic basis. For example, a major cancer research focus uh, involves clinical trials, clinical research, that is conducted on the basis of patient exposure in the James but it's being conducted by clinician investigators and, and others who are appointed to the cancer center. So there's a lot of back and right. forth communication and traffic around these issues. And then, uh, I'm not sure of the exact date, but somewhere last fall, you were asked and accepted uh, the position of director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center. Early November. Early November, so you're four or five months into it now. Right. Give me a sense of of your mission, your goals. It sounds like you and and your your core team have to look into the future, anticipate what areas of cancer research and treatment are growing, changing, have the most promise, and then recruit and staff those areas now for three, four, five years in the future. So, Steve, you hit the nail right on the head. That that's exactly what our so you need a crystal ball. <laughs> Well, I need, I need very good people okay. who are willing to work with me to, to make that all happen. And fortunately, we have a team of such individuals. We have two major uh, focus or foci that we're going after Is that the right plural? now. That's the plural I guess of focus? Fo yes. Uh, I've never. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. So, so the two, two main areas before right. I interrupted there. Yeah. Um, one, one is uh, to help develop a center for immunotherapeutics. Uh, immunotherapies are, go are emerging as the fourth type of cancer treatment. They are different than surgery, different than chemotherapy, different than radiation oncology approaches. Uh, it's an area unto itself. Uh, and we're very, very fortunate that uh, major philanthropic uh, uh, thrusts have been developed uh, involving both the James Foundation as well as Pelotonia. Commitments from the university as a whole and the College of Medicine in particular 
to help recruit individuals who can provide leadership for immunotherapeutics, uh, as well as help us develop the basic and translational full-time research activities that are going to be critical to support immunotherapeutic developments. So that's one major area. Yet another major area is a program in cancer engineering that will involve faculty from the College of Medicine as well as the College of Engineering uh, and the Comprehensive Cancer Center, where collectively we're going to be focusing on a variety of different areas such as optoelectronics, molecular imaging, uh, ultrastructure studies making use of our phenomenal electron microscopy uh, capacities here. Is that like a super microscope? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, nanotechnology to deliver uh, oh, um, drugs, drugs, pinpoint exact locations. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's interesting because when you say engineering, it's literally working with the engineers to create devices that will help you allow you to do all these things. Well, devices, do. imaging technologies. Yeah. Uh, how exciting is that? Yeah. And 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 we're we're I think we're on to my last question. Okay, you have an amazing workload. You're a surgeon. You see patients. You operate. I think one or two days a week. Yes, two days a week. You have a lab doing yes. cutting edge research. Yes, you run uh, one of the largest comprehensive cancer centers in the world. Yes, how do you manage to do it all? Well, you have to be willing to live with a fair amount of uh, dynamic tension that comes out of your out of your time management skills, which have to be upper tier. Uh, but probably the real secret is identifying people who want to work with you and then giving them as much of what you're responsible for as possible, helping them get the resources to execute on that, getting the heck out of their way so that they can execute on that. And then uh, not taking credit for their accomplishments, but championing what they're doing. Uh, and I'm very, very fortunate because I am surrounded by such people where I'm working now. That's a great um, leadership philosophy. Hire the best people, give them the best resources you can, and then let them do their thing. Exactly. And I assume that's, the over your years, that's the leaders that you responded best to. And now you can be that type of mentor leader for hundreds of people here. Well, I hope so. Uh, the proof will be in the pudding, but it, uh, it's certainly uh, where, where I'm looking forward to helping provide leadership in that vein. Well, it sounds like you're, you and the whole Comprehensive Cancer Center are on that track. I think so. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Well, thank you. Thanks for being on the podcast. And perhaps you'll come back in a while and fill us in on the um, immunotherapy and the um, engineering. I'd be welcome to provide an interim report as we go forward. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Soloff Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.